our mission here at New Hope is we'll, we say it is to glorify God and make disciples. We believe every church exists to glorify God and make disciples, uh, meaning glorify Him with our lives. Everything focuses and points to Him because we believe all of Scripture and all, all of history points to Him. And we believe we glorify Him by continuing just to uh, fulfill the great commission of making disciples, of helping other people love and worship Him. And so every church has that mission, glorify God and make disciples. But we also believe we have the unique way of kind of working that out. We say here at New Hope, we exist to glorify God and make disciples by connecting people to a life satisfied in Jesus. We believe that our hearts were created for him, and apart from our hearts finding the rest in him, they will never be fully satisfied. That our hearts long for him, and that we here in New York and around the world, but New York specifically, a lot of times we are, it's a hustle and bustle city. We're fighting to get to the next thing. We're fighting to make it in our careers. We're fighting to make it in finances, different ways. And if we're not careful, we can turn those things into an idol thinking they'll satisfy. And we just want to say that we are grateful for all those things, but ultimately Jesus is the only one who satisfies. And so we hope that today you would encounter Jesus in such a way that your heart would find its rest and satisfaction in Jesus. John chapter 1, part of one of our values here at New Hope is that we memorize Scripture together. And so we just started a series in John a couple of weeks ago, and we're in John chapter 1 last week at the beginning, and we're moving on in John chapter 1. But what we're doing together is memorization. We're doing John chapter 1, 1 through 18 together as a church over the next 18 weeks. So we're in week 2. So I want to encourage you, grab your Bibles, open it up. If you have not memorized verses 1 and 2, perfectly fine. Read along with us. Um, but we want to encourage you, whether you quote along with us or read along with us, together might we do John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 together. Okay, so John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, would you quote it with me? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Amen. As we continue to study, as we looked at John chapter 1, 1 through 18 last week, we understood, and I made this claim that I'll continue to unpack in the weeks to come, that I believe these first 18 verses are a great and exhaustive but very poetic introduction to the entire book in the sense that every argument in the entire gospel of John is in these first 18 verses. And then all the stories that follow, especially leading up to chapter 12 and 13 as we transition into part two of John. John's written in two parts. John 1 uh, and the part one, it covers really Jesus' ministry all the way up to the last week uh, or Holy Week, which is what we just went through as in our church calendar. And then the second part of John, part two, is just that entire last week. It's an exhaustive, a lot of teachings. But specifically, the first part is really unpacking here, John 1, 1 through 18. But we pick up our uh, the sermon today in verse 19. So if you want to read along with me, John 1, 1 through 19, we're going to read through verse 34. If you're with me in John 1, would you simply say amen? Amen. Verse 19 reads this. And this testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, uh, but confessed, I am not the Christ, meaning I'm not the Messiah that you're looking for. Verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet, referring to Moses? And they, he answered, no. So they said to them, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, he said, 
I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pause there for a second. I want you to flip. You don't have to flip. It's probably on the same page. But I want you to look over at John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Once again, I mentioned verse 18, first 18 verses unpack and foreshadow everything he's about to argue. And immediately he goes in and argues and makes the connection that John the Baptist, once again, John the writer of the gospel is different than the John being referenced here, John the Baptist. But John the Baptist being talked about and written about, he wanted to make clear that this was not the Messiah. Why is that important? Because we look at John 1.1, which we just quoted, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. They never, John, the gospel writer, never says Jesus there. And so he wants to clarify that who he's talking about as the Messiah, the Word in the beginning, was not John the Baptist. So he unpacks that for us and points out the role of John the Baptist, which was to make the way of the Lord, to, to shout the coming of the Messiah, but he Don't be confused, he was not the Messiah. And so then we get to verse 29. Well, then who is the Messiah? The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, the he being John the Baptist, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He's speaking in time. How was Jesus before him? He was before him in time, speaking of eternity. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Here's the main point of today's sermon is simply this. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. See, the text in verse 29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yes, this is accurate, to take away the sins of the world, meaning he was the one who would die in our place. But I want us to see tonight uh, the application of this text, which is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. Now, quickly, let me give context to the narrative, and then we're going to jump back into the Old Testament a little bit in Leviticus, and we're going to unpack this idea that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, because this is kind of the emphasis of this whole narrative and this whole story that we're reading in this week's text, is pointing to that John the Baptist, a great prophet, was not the one we should be worshiping, but instead we should be worshiping Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. But the context is we understand that even though John doesn't give us this part of the story, the other part, other gospels give us that John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus. 
He had a front row seat to this moment where he was baptizing and with water, knowing that there was going to be one whom the Holy Spirit would come like in the form of a dove and would dwell upon, and then that person would be the Messiah, and that person would be the one who would not just baptize with water, would baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is foreshadowing to when we get to Acts in the church in the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and baptized is the church, meaning fulfill, uh, is immersed in the church of God, is immersed and, and completely enveloped by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God dwells within the church. And so it's all appointing to John saying, hey, I baptized with some water. But there's one who's going to baptize with the Spirit of God. Now, this isn't necessarily a part of our text, but just why is that important? It's because the Spirit of God comes and dwells in holy places. He comes and dwells in holy places and holy places only. And without the purification then God of a place or a people, the Spirit of God cannot dwell. So the fact that the Spirit of God comes and dwells on a people, then that means there's this great moment of purification. Let, let me unpack this truth. If you would, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to spend as much time in Leviticus 16 today as we are going to in John chapter 1. But in John chapter 1, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, this is illustration of a number of things, I believe, of the Passover, specifically of the Passover and the Exodus, when they what? They took a lamb without blemish, and they crucified that lamb, and that lamb was a substitute for what? The oldest son's life. That in order for this oldest son in the family to have life, something had to die. And so this lamb was substituted in its place. And the blood was put on the doorpost of the people of God. And if the uh, blood was on the doorpost, meaning they were under the blood, then they were under the atonement and that life had come to that place. And so for uh, John the Baptist to say, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, I very much believe he is pointing to that picture. But even with that being said, when we turn to Leviticus 16, we're going to look at the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a specific day within the Jewish calendar where what would, I'm going to give a quick summary, is we're not going to read all of Leviticus 16, but if you want to go and read all the details to it, is that the high priest would step in uh, to the holies of holies in order to make a sacrifice, an atonement, a forgiveness of sins for all the people. And one of the interesting things that would have to happen is if you read the first half of Leviticus 16, is that Aaron, he's the first one here as the high priest, he had to make a sacrifice for the purification of him and his family. Then he had to go and make a sacrifice for the purification of the place, of the temple of God. He had to go and make a, he had to go and um, cleanse the temple of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God does not dwell, come and dwell in that which is unholy. So there had to be this purification that take place so that when the Spirit of God came and dwelt upon the mercy seat, the place had been purified. Then the high priest would enter in behind the veil that was separated um, the holies of holies from the rest of the tabernacle and the rest of the people. And only once a year were they, was one person able to enter into this place in order to make a sacrifice. But a purification had to take place. And so I want to look at a few parts of Leviticus 16, and I want to see how the Day of Atonement points us to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when it comes to the Day of Atonement, atonement meaning your sins are appeased and that God, the wrath of God is appeased because your sins have been atoned for, they have been dealt with, they have been paid. 
the Day of Atonement. Four truths as we unpack today's sermon, as we think about the Day of Atonement from Leviticus 16. Truth number one, who was the person who was able to make atonement? So we want to look at who is the person who is able to make atonement? We understand from Leviticus 16.11, it says this, Aaron shall present a bull as a sin offering for himself. Why himself? Because he was the high priest. It's important to note that he's the high priest. There were not two high priests. There was one high priest. So a high priest had was who's in reference here. So Aaron, the high priest, shall present a bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. So who was the person who could make atonement? It had to be a spotless high priest. Aaron here is the high priest who would enter into the holies of holies. He was not without blemish. He was not spotless. So he had to go through this ritual that just explained in order to, so that there was the purification of sins for he and his family so that he may enter into the holies of holies. But who could go in and make atonement? It had to be a, a sinless, spotless, purified high priest. As we begin to think about Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, go and read Hebrews. Hebrews unpacks this idea and explains how Jesus was our high priest, but Jesus was a spotless high priest. When we study and we celebrate uh, Christmas, one of the things we celebrate within the Christian faith is the virgin birth of Jesus. Why is this important? Because Psalms 51 says that we were uh, born and conceived with a sinful nature. Romans chapter 5 says that because sin entered the world through one person, and therefore all have sinned, sin has entered and come into everyone, and therefore death has spread to everyone. Meaning the moment you and I are born as humans, we inherit a sinful nature. That it comes through as the seed of Adam is passed on, meaning that sinful nature is passed on, which is why Jesus had to be virgin born. Meaning he was born spotless. He was born without that sinful nature. He was supernatural, 100% God, 100% man. Yes, we believe this because it's essential to the foundation of what we are referring to here, that Jesus had to be sinless and spotless. But he was not only born sinless, but he continued his life with no sin. And therefore, he is our high priest who goes and goes and dies in our place as a spotless high priest. He and he alone was able to do this. But not only was he spotless high priest, but I just said he and he alone. Who was the person who could make atonement? It was a solitary high priest. Leviticus 16, 7, 17. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. There was only one and one only who could step in this place. When we look at all of Scripture, especially as we think about the Old Testament, because sometimes I think we think, hey, Jesus is in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and there was a lot of other things that were happening in the Old Testament, a lot of which I don't fully understand, a lot of which we don't do anymore, which I'm really grateful for, so I'm glad that's gone, but now we just focus on Jesus because Jesus is in the New Testament. The problem with that is, is Jesus is in the Old Testament too. And the Old Testament is crying out to us and pointing to Jesus. See, one of the things, we didn't, re- we didn't read this, but in Leviticus 16, there are three baptisms that take place. Three. Um, we often think about baptism as a New Testament tradition, which it is, but it's very much an Old Testament tradition that we see, a Jewish tradition that you would have to completely, the high priest had to uh, completely bathe and baptize himself 
put on the holies of holies after the sacrifices and then go into the holies of holies. He then, after his baptism, was able to come in. Then later on, after the sacrifices, he had to be baptized again. Baptism was a picture of the purification of sins over a person. The same is true for us today. That baptism is a, is a representation of the purifications that of our sins from Jesus. Here's the point I'm pointing out. Three times in one day, we see baptism take place because it had to happen over again. Why? Because it was insufficient. Why did the day atonement sacrifice happen every year? Because it was insufficient. Why did the, were there sacrifices every day within the Jewish culture? Because they were insufficient. There was always a need for more and more sacrifices because it was never sufficient. And what it's pointing to is although there's this need for sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, it's pointing to the fact that no matter what we do, it's never good enough. And that's the beauty of Jesus is because Jesus once and for all deals with it because he and he alone is good enough. So who is the person who can make atonement? There is one spotless high priest who is able to make atonement, and we understand that Scripture is pointing to Jesus. John the Baptist would say, he, that guy right there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one sacrifice who is able to take away everyone's sins. This is the beauty and the power of what he is saying. Not only who is the person who can make atonement, second, what is the means by where the atonement was made? How does the atonement take place? Leviticus 16, 18 through 19. Then he shall go to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. Once again, Hebrews chapter 9 kind of unpacks this truth. But here's what I want us to see is Isaiah says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. If you're new to the Christian tradition or Christian teaching, you're reading this going, man, this is, this is pretty gruesome. Like there's a whole lot of bloodshed. This is kind of weird. And I want to say, understand that first of all, this is a tradition that is culturally uh, uh, relevant in a lot of different ways in its time. And so it wouldn't have been as weird in this time because it was a very common thing. But I still want to see it's not just a cultural thing that they did. we got to understand the foundation of the teaching of Scripture is this, is that God created us to be with him and to walk with him and have good relationship. He made all things good. If you go read Genesis 1, this is emphasis on good. But God said and gave us a commandment that he told us not to disobey. And it was real simple. If we disobey, the consequence for that disobedience is death. It's death. The consequence for sin is death. But God being a just God in our sin, he can't just ignore that consequence. He's a just God. He is holy and righteous and just. And so, therefore, the consequence for your sin and the consequence for my sin is death. And as we look at the sacrificial idea in the Old Testament and the sacrifice of Jesus in the New Testament, it's this picture that something has to die in order for you to live. And if we still think that's crazy, then let me just be honest. You don't understand the gravity of your sin as it relates to a holy God. Because if you understood the holy God who can make all things, and even in that, in his infiniteness and in his love and his grace, that you and I think that we're better than him. Because anytime we sin against him, we're choosing to worship ourselves instead of worship him. You are saying you are worthy of praise and worship. You are worthy to make the decision what is best for you. And you are bringing just disrespect, sin, and shame to a holy God. And so what you're saying is, no, I choose me over you. And the bottom line is, is the result of that is death. 
But in his grace and his mercy, he's a holy and just God, but he's also a gracious and merciful God. And so he makes a way. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, we see that the shedding of blood was necessary. But that's why Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, when he was eating with his disciples, last week we took the Lord's Supper together, as it is our tradition, the second Sunday of every month. And we always read the text where Jesus says, you drink of the cup, which represents his blood. This is my new covenant. He was representing, he was saying that my blood being poured out is making a new way, a new covenant for you. And what is a covenant? It's, a, it's, the, it's the way he relates to his people. So to be in covenant with God is to be in relationship with him. And so it's his way of making a new covenant. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we what? We need a spotless lamb who would lay down his life for us. This is what we're seeing. And then there's only one and one only who's able to do that as we point to Jesus. This is why John the Baptist would say, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who is the person? Who is the means of atonement? And then thirdly, what are the effects of the atonement? I've already kind of explained it, but let me go ahead and unpack it a little bit more. What are the effects of the atonement? The effects... First is the sanctification of holy things, that which were unholy. So that which is unholy becomes holy. Leviticus 16, 15 through 16. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do uh, with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. See, sanctification literally means to be set apart as holy. And when the effects of the atonement is that which is unholy is able to be made holy. That which was unclean has been now made clean. That now allowed, here Aaron in Leviticus 16, he had been made holy because of his sacrifice. The place had been made holy because of sacrifice. And now they were able, he was able to enter in and to meet with God. And we see that the Spirit of God comes and dwells in the Holy of Holies. The effects of the atonement is that which is unholy is made holy. Why is that important? Well, one of the things that we don't see in this text but became a common tradition was if you entered the Holy of Holies the wrong person at the wrong time and with out perfect purity, you would drop dead in God's presence. Now, we haven't, you, if you want to go back and look at, uh, this is Leviticus 16. If you want to just flip uh, a few chapters before, we see as we study Leviticus that Aaron's two sons just died because they sacrificed and worshiped God and led the people of God to worship him in an unholy way. They simply dropped in his presence because we understand that that which is unholy cannot come in the presence of that which was holy and live. But through the atonement, that which is unholy is made holy, and we are able to then enter in and be with God. So that which is unholy is made holy. How is that happening? Because sins were taken away. What is the effects? That which, the effects of the atonement is that which is unholy becomes holy because sins were taken away. Not only that, but we see in Matthew chapter 27, we read this Friday night, but if you remember, if we've, we just read a text in Leviticus 16 where it says that he would take the blood behind the veil. The veil is what separated the unholy from the holy. But when Jesus, at noon, from noon to three, it was dark while he was on, hanging on the cross. 
And then he cries out, saying it is finished, and he hands over his spirit, and he says over to the Father, meaning it is finished. And in that moment, an earthquake happens, and Matthew 27, 51 says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What, what curtain is he referring to? Because now, time out, because if you have an earthquake in a city, there's a lot of things that get broken. A lot of things get broken. Why is Matthew talking about this one thing that got broken? Because of the significance of this moment that the veil was torn from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This idea that the veil was torn from top to bottom, what is it saying? It's saying the separation between that which is unholy and holy has been removed because Jesus has made a way. That because of Jesus, that which was unholy can now be made holy because your sins are forgiven and the effects of the atonement is that which is unholy is now sanctified, set apart as holy and we are now able to enter in to the holies of holies. Meaning we're able to now what? Be with God. The beauty of what John the Baptist would say, he would baptize you with the Spirit, talking about the day of Pentecost. How can the Spirit of God come and dwell on the church? Because the church has been made holy. The Spirit of God cannot come and dwell on that which is unholy. And you and I are made holy not because of anything we've done. Go read the Old Testament. One of the purposes of the Old Testament is to prove to you that you can't do it. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do, no matter how many sacrifices, no matter how many times you get baptized, no matter all these things, it's never good enough. But instead, you needed one who was the ultimate high priest, who was spotless, who would go and lay down his life to be the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and that through the shedding of his blood, you the, tell, the, the veil could be torn and you could be sanctified, be forgiven, be atoned for, and you could enter into the Holy Holies. This is the beauty of what Christ has done for us. This is why we call it the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, because Jesus substituted something in that moment. When he went to the cross, he he took on our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that what? We might become the righteousness of God. It's a substitutionary language. He knew no sin, but he took on your sin so that you who did not know righteousness might take on his righteousness. It's a substitute that takes place. That he took on your sinfulness and died in your place, the penalty, so that what? You could receive his holiness. And because you have received his holiness, the Spirit of God dwells on us in the moment of salvation, came and dwells on the church so that we could be with him forever. This is the argument, complete argument of Ephesians chapter 2. First half talks about how Jesus has made us alive through grace, and because of that, we are now the church, the temple of God that God is building with his spirit to dwell with us. Because we were unholy, and Christ in the atonement has made us holy. I hope we get this. So in light of that, the last truth is simply this. What is our response to this? What is the response to the atonement? Leviticus 16, verse 29 And it shall be a statue for you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the the stranger who sojourns uh, with you in your your land. Moving on, it says this, for on this day... um, Excuse me, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord of all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. We've talked about Sabbath. It was a couple of months ago. We did a, when we were in the um, Ten Commandments series, we talked about Sabbath. And one of the things we said about the Sabbath, the Sabbath isn't just a day of rest. It is that. It is a day where we stop from our work, but it's, it has two po- components to it. We stop from our work in order to what? To spend the day focusing on worship of God. So it's, 
So it's a day that we stop and worship God. So for him, for him to say here in the Day of Atonement, this is a Sabbath day for you, meaning it is a day that, is, that you, as the high priest, is going on to make sacrifices to sins. You're not at home, uh, Netflix and potato chips. Like, you're not just ignoring what's happening. But instead, this is a day where you stop your work, you stop what's going on, and you recognize the sacrifice being made, and you respond in worship. You respond and focus unto him. And so when John the Baptist and John... Chapter 1 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It carries the weight of everything we just talked about in Leviticus 16. John the Baptist understood something. John the Baptist understood that he, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, he would be the one who, was sh- who would shed his blood, and that through the shedding of that blood, that you and I could have the forgiveness of sins. Which is why the main point of today's sermon is Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. Your sins. I thought it was a, a cute little idea if you walk out, you'll see uh, that there is a mirror uh, sitting there, and there's a poster that was made uh, just to help, you know, it was, a, it, it was cute for the kids, but I think it's applicable to us as adults as well. It's a mirror, but the, the sign around it is like pointing at the mirror. You're obviously standing in the mirror because you can see yourself. That's how mirrors work. Um, and it says, Jesus died for you. I think that's what it says, but it says something like that. I actually don't remember what it says, but it, Jesus is the Lamb of God who, who died for you, whatever. But it's the gospel message, because here's what I want you to see, is that he died for the sins of the world, absolutely, and you're included in that. You're included in that. That Jesus loves you, and he died for you. And so what is your response to the fact that Jesus is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Your response is that would you turn to him in worship? Would you turn to him and recognize that he is the only one who can forgive you of your sins? He is the only one who is able. He was the only one who was a spotless high priest who laid down his life. His literally, his body was broken. His blood was poured out to make an atonement, his substitutionary atonement for your sins. So our scripture says that anybody would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What does that mean? What will I be saved from? You'll be saved from your own sin and punishment. Your own sin and punishment. Now we believe Scripture is true. That the, It's real simple. God says, don't disobey me. If you do, you'll die. And all of us are under that penalty unless we turn to Jesus and recognize that he took that penalty for us so that we could have his righteousness. It's a substitute. It's a gift. Ephesians 2 would say that this is a gift that has been given unto you. You can't earn it, but it's a gift of God's grace unto you. And so I challenge to you today, non-Christian specifically first, meaning that you may be around and trying to learn about the Christian faith. There's a lot of doctrines and truths of the Christian faith. There's a lot of things we believe, but it all points to this simple truth, that Jesus loved you so very much that he laid down his life so that you could have life that he died so that you could live. It's that simple. But praise be to God, when we celebrate uh, here on Easter, is we don't celebrate a God who just died. We celebrate a God who lives. Because here's the thing, there's a lot of people who died on a cross. Two others that we know of died that day on a cross. So yes, Jesus had to die, but his death wasn't the end of the story. But it was the fact that he was raised to life. And we believe this. We're like, come on, you can't really believe someone raised from the dead. We're in like 2020-something now. Like, we're, we're like, we got like computer chips and they like AI. We got cars that are driving for us. Like, we're smarter to them to believe something like that. And I just want to simply say, no. Like, we really believe this. And we have good reason to believe this. And I can not only from a, a theological, intellectual, doctrinal standpoint, 
But I just want to say this from an experiential standpoint. The reason why we say we want to connect people to a life satisfied in Jesus, because I'm telling you something, Jesus has changed my life. Jesus has given me hope. Jesus has given me a future. And even in great hurt and pain, Jesus is everything. When Psalm 16 says that it's in his presence, there's fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like, I, yes, amen to that. Now, there have been a lot of things that I found joy in in my life in this world, but nothing compares to Jesus. There's a lot of things that I've trusted in this world, but nothing compared to Jesus because nothing else is God and can bear the weight of my life except for Jesus. And so I invite you today, would you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And if, you, and if you're here, you're going, hey, man, I'm still learning. I got questions. We only ask questions. We want to help you. We want to walk with you. We want you to see that this isn't just a belief system that we have, even though there are beliefs within this, but this is truly a relationship with a God who what? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we haven't gotten to this yet, but in verse 14, it says that God, that Word, came and dwelt with us, that He came and lived with us in order to show His love for us, in order to die for us, in order to be resurrected, to redeem you back unto Him. And so would you trust in him as your Lord and Savior? For the Christian in the room today, might we never allow that truth to just be something else that we hear once again? Oh, yeah, I know the story of Easter. No, let it never grow that familiar to you. But instead, might it bring you to the same response that Leviticus 16 should bring us to, the same response as we read of the two Marys when they encountered Jesus? The response is what? Worship. Worship with your life. Worship for us in the Christian faith is, yes, singing songs. That's one of the ways we use the English word worship. But Romans 12 tells us that based off the mercies of God, might we all present our lives as a living sacrifice unto God, and that is your spiritual act of worship. So worship is a lifestyle where we give our life unto Jesus every single day and say, it's not about me, but my life is all about you, Jesus. So the response to everybody in the room, Christian and non-Christian alike, is to surrender and worship Jesus today for what he has done for you. Amen? Let's pray. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.